Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife's Oral Board Review Series. My name is Patrick Georgioff, and I'm here today with Teddy Puzio, co-fellow of mine at the University of Texas, Memorial Hermann. Hey, everybody. Uh, happy to be on Behind the Knife. Um, looking forward to a good talk today. Yeah, so uh, we're going to be covering, uh, this is our last episode, actually, and we're going to cover stomach. And uh, the score, uh, core diseases and conditions for stomach include gastric adenocarcinoma, gastrin foreign bodies, upper GI bleed, GIST, morbid obesity, peptic ulcer disease, and stress gastritis. Advanced diseases include functional disorders of the stomach. The core operations and procedures are gastrectomy, partial or total, repair of a gastroduodenal perforation, gastrostomy tube placement, and vagotomy and drainage. Advanced operations and procedures include morbid obesity and revisional procedures for post-gastrectomy syndromes. And before we get started, I want to thank uh, all the folks at Behind the Knife, including Kevin, for allowing us to do this series. And a big thank you to all of uh, my co-hosts for putting in the time and effort, uh, through, despite being you know very very basically clinically and with families and whatnot, uh, to make this this whole thing a reality. So Teddy, let's start with uh, GI bleed. And so the, the the simplest things for GI bleed, we need to first assess for uh, patient instability, uh, get good access, uh, order cross match blood, give the blood early, and arrange for appropriate level of uh, admission and uh, and monitoring. And to get it started, we definitely want to put that NG tube in, aspirate, and try to help rule out an upper GI bleed. Uh, but uh, in regards to history, Teddy, what do you want to what do you want to focus in on for history? So that's when you start kind of thinking about your differential. So when you're asking questions, you want to think about upper GI bleeding sources. So things like peptic ulcers, you're going to ask them about, you know, do they use NSAIDs? Have they ever had H. pylori? Um, have they ever had symptoms of an ulcer? And also want to ask them about, you know, have they ever had upper GI surgery, thinking about marginal ulcer, um, also looking for um, symptoms of liver disease, because then you would be thinking about a variceal bleed. If uh, if it's a lower GI bleed, you're also thinking about diverticulosis versus diverticulitis. You're going to ask questions about that, whether or not they've had a colonoscopy, because you're thinking about cancer, um, IBD. And then finally, you know, angiodysplasia. Um, so, moving on, Patrick, what do you, where do you go with uh, treatment options? Yeah, and so again, this is the stomach section, so they focus on upper GI bleed in the score criteria. But we're going to cover all GI bleed treatment. And so, from a medical standpoint, you want to get the patient on a PPI drip right away. Uh, if they have variceal bleeding, con- consider octreotide, and certainly if they're on any anticoagulant medications, uh, reverse those. And then, you know, for all all bleeding, upper and lower, we start with scopes. Uh, and we, uh, if we initially get control of the bleed, it happens again, another scope. Uh, and so those are number one and number two are scope, scope, scope. And in considering preparing the patient, you may want to give the patient a rapid prep. Uh, you can also consider prokinetic agents for an upper upper GI bleed that might help clear the stomach. So once you've exhausted the scope route, uh, we move on to uh, angiography. And this could be something where you send the patient directly to IR or for a CTA first. Uh, it all depends on how stable the patient is and institutional preferences. And 
uh, it's a little bit more extreme here, but you can consider provocative angiography. This is where uh, heparin infusions or vasodilating agents are directly infused uh, to the area of bleeding. Um, this would be a little bit farther down the algorithm, and uh, you have to state that surgery is available uh, and um, there in case urgent surgery is needed in the event of catastrophic bleeding. Uh, so again, we're going to start with scope. Scope again, consider angiography, which would be IR or CTA first. Teddy, what about surgery? So let's say you know we've multiple scopes, whether this is up or lower, we've tried multiple scopes. Uh, ineffective. We've tried angiography, ineffective, or they're or maybe on the boards. They'll say they're not available, and you know you're the surgeon in a rural hospital. You have to figure out how to treat this surgically. What about surgery for upper GI bleeding? Yeah, so some of it depends on whether we're talking about a gastric or duodenal. So you know if it's a if it's something gastric, a bleeding ulcer, you can consider resection, uh, or if it's a mass like a bleeding gist, again resection. Um, duodenal, uh, that's when you we start talking about oversewing of a duodenal, like a posterior duodenal ulcer, um, which we'll kind of get to later, because um, that is a kind of a specific topic that they like to test on the boards how you um, triple stitch these. So then, you know, when you think about lower GI bleeding, again, it's really really important that you localize where the bleeding is. If you can, um, get away with a segmental bowel resection if you know for sure where your um, bleeding is coming from. But if not, you know, the patient's unstable, you've exhausted all the other efforts, um, then you would do a total abdominal colectomy with the caveat that you're certain it's not an upper GI bleed. All right, let's move on to peptic ulcer disease. So in the U.S., uh, hemorrhage is the most common complication of peptic ulcer disease. Uh, making up 73% of, of ulcer complications. And this is followed by perforation, which is 9%, and obstruction, which is 3%. And by far and away, the most common etiology for peptic ulcer disease is H. pylori and or NSAID use. Um, Teddy, you want to talk a little bit about H. pylori? Yeah, so H. pylori is uh, present in the overwhelming majority of duodenal ulcers and about 70% of gastric ulcers. Um, but Patients with H. pylori, only 20% of them develop an ulcer. So there's a lot of asymptomatic H. pylori. Um, and what we know, based on the physiology, is that H. pylori increases gastric acid secretion, decreases bicarbonate production, and increases inflammation, all three of which lead to ulceration. Um, <clears throat> when we talk about NSAIDs, we know that about 15% of uh, ulcers are due to NSAIDs, and the majority of them are in the stomach. Uh, Patrick, how about um, H. pylori? Can you tell us a little bit more yeah. specifics? Yeah, so um, at least 50% of the world is actually infected with H. pylori, and the risk is highest in lower socioeconomic areas. And there are three ways to test for active disease. Uh, specifically, this is not serology testing, which will not tell you if there's active disease. So the first is endoscopic biopsy. You can perform urease testing, or less commonly would be a culture uh, of that biopsy. The second would be a urea breath test. Um, important to note that PPIs can interfere with urea breath, uh, breath testing. So uh, keep that in mind that uh, PPI should be held. And stool antigen testing is the third. Again, a hold PPIs for this. And in general, you want to repeat testing for active disease uh, with about four weeks after finishing your treatment to confirm that you've, you've had success. And in regards to treatment, this is a little bit new. Quadruple therapy is, is probably the gold standard at this point. Uh, that includes flagell, tetracycline, PPI, and bismuth. Again, triple, or excuse me, not triple, but quadruple therapy for H. pylori consists of flagell, tetracycline, a PPI, and bismuth. Um, so let's go through uh, some surgical management. So, you know, 
nowadays most of this management is medical because we have better therapy for H. pylori and PPI. So really elective surgery for peptic ulcer disease is pretty rare. Um, but, you know, uh, as like most things, the oral boards likes to touch on rare things. So surgical management of peptic ulcer disease is fair game uh, and you should be all, a little familiar with it. So patients with peptic ulcer disease typically present in one of three ways, either they're bleeding or there's a perforation or there's an obstruction. Um, so in a patient that's bleeding, it's important to remember that, uh, you know, the first line treatment is interventional radiology. And if these endoscopy, 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 yeah. number one, and then consider IR. Right. And if that fails or the patient becomes too unstable, um, then you move to uh, the, opera- the operating room. So for a patient with a posterior duodenal uh, ulcer, you, this is important to know how to verbalize this. So you make an anterior longitudinal duodenotomy in the, in the duodenum. Find the ulcer. When you're looking at the ulcer, you're going to do the three-point suture ligation. Um, and it's important to verbalize that you're going to put a stitch superior to the ulcer a stitch inferior to the ulcer and a stitch uh, medially um, to the ulcer. You want to avoid going laterally because this can ding the common bile duct and that's that on your oral boards that may lead to problems and your patient you know the next day has a bilirubin that's elevated and you have to kind of get yourself out of that. So you put those three interrupted sutures in um, and then you close the duodenum transversely. Um, Patrick, what about um, surgery for a stomach ulceration? Yeah, so if you know where the ulcer is and can identify it, you can definitely perform a wedge resection if possible, uh, or uh, in some circumstances, a distal gastrectomy, uh, in which case you want to take all of the antrum uh, to avoid retained antrum syndrome. And in this case, we'll repair with a Roux-en-Y gastrojejunostomy or uh, a Bill-Roth II reconstruction, whatever you're most comfortable with describing. And it is fair game. You may be asked to describe a truncal vagotomy and pyloroplasty. So that's something worth uh, familiarizing yourself as I imagine mm, a lot of general surgery residents may have done few of these or none of these. Uh, so, Teddy, what about a, how do we manage surgically a, a perforation? Yeah, so this is the, um, the Graham patch. Again, it's um, classically described as interrupted suture over the ulceration and you lie lie a piece of omentum and tie down the omentum. Uh, The goal is not to close that ulcer because the tissue could be friable. You just want to get the omentum to kind of sit on top of it. Um, Now, for patients that have obstruction, secondary to inflammation, and scarring from chronic ulceration, again, these are going to require a resection. So you can do a distal gastrectomy with either a Roux-en-Y reconstruction or a Bill-Roth II. But if you are faced with this scenario, it's, it's important that you should uh, <clears throat> obtain a biopsy or frozen sections to make sure you don't have a cancer, which would change your operative management. All right, let's move on to GISTs. Uh, so GISTs are the most common mesenchymal neoplasm in the GI tract. Uh, they are submucosal masses, which is important in regards to the workup, and they may originate from the interstitial cells of Cajal. But this is not entirely clear. Um, all uh, or m- most uh, GISTs are positive for the CD117 antigen. Uh, this is a product of mutations in the KIT proto-oncogene. There is a subset of GISTs that lack the KIT mutations. Uh, they have activating mutations in the uh, related receptor for tyrosine kinase, uh, PDGFRA. Um, when you're thinking about these, the most common um, 
etiologies in the differential diagnosis includes leiomyosarcoma, leiomyoma, and lymphoma. So these patients, uh, if you're presented with a scenario on your boards, um, about two-thirds of these patients have GIS or GI stromal tumors located in the stomach. The rest are in the small bowel. Um, One-third of them are asymptomatic, and they're discovered incidentally um, on a CT scan that's done for something else. Patients that are symptomatic usually have symptoms from mass effect. These things can get pretty large, and they usually have nausea, vomiting, early satiety, sometimes even gastric outlet obstruction, uh, and abdominal pain. The mass can um, even erode and or bleed, and they can uh, present with uh, some clinical anemia. So Patrick, in these patients, how do we work them up? Yeah, so start with the CT scan. Uh, the CT will show a smooth-walled mass that brightly enhances, and this may be uh, exophytic, and if it's very large, you can either have, often have central necrosis as well, uh, as these tumors may outgrow their blood supply. And if the CT scan is unclear in terms of diagnosis, you'd move next to an EGD with EUS, and this is going to help to determine that the mass is, in fact, in the submucosal layer. Now, biopsies are an interesting topic when it comes to uh, a gist. Uh, Teddy, you want to talk a little bit about the, the finer points of that? Yeah, so if you see a, if you do an EGD and you see a submucosal lesion, um, the wrong thing to do would be just to grab it with biopsy forceps because, again, if you do that, you're only going to get mucosa, which will be normal, leading to um, not, you won't get the diagnosis. So you have to get an, either an FNA or something that is a full thickness biopsy. Um, and then to decide on... Um, Resection, if the mass is resectable, the patient's a good surgical candidate, you don't necessarily need to get biopsies. Um, and you can um, actually just, sometimes it leads to complications or like bleeding or tumor rupture. Um, if you, there are some instances where you definitely need to get biopsies and that would be in the setting of um, metastatic disease or if you're thinking about treating them with neoadjuvant therapy. Um, and finally, if you're also concerned about lymphoma, those are the times that you want to confirm with um, a biopsy. All right. So if you have a CT scan that shows a smooth-walled mass, brightly enhances, maybe even they say it's in the submucosal layer, you don't need a biopsy, right? You Correct. just take that patient to surgery. You can cl- pretty much clinically know that it's a gist. Okay. Now, but there's any complications where you want to ensure that or you're going to have to treat with neoadjuvant therapy or for metastatic disease? or to rule out some other type of mass because you're really just not sure, then it's an FNA, right? Full thickness, FNA. Okay. Yep. All right, well, so how do, you, how do we treat them? Yeah, yeah. So surgery is pretty easy. You just cut it out. And uh, this you want to resect to negative margins. There's no specific centimeter or millimeter, millimeter requirement, just negative margins. And you do not have to f- perform a lymphadenectomy, uh, as met to the lymph nodes uh, in the setting of gastrointestinal stromal tumor are very rare. And... Don't forget about imatinib. So uh, medical treatment for GIS uh, are tyrosine kinase inhibitors like imatinib. This could be given in the neoadjuvant setting, and that would be for the uh, for the use of a large tumor you're trying to shrink down to allow for surgical resection or if the patient has metastatic disease. And in this case, you probably want to treat uh, for about six months, re-image, uh, and determine what to do next. Now, the duration of treatment is, is debated and up in the air and would also depend on your, your, the tumor response. You can also give uh, imatinib in the adjuvant setting. Because randomized controlled data has shown that adjuvant imatinib decreases uh, disease recurrence uh, for specific tumors. These are high-risk tumors, so this is based on size, uh, over 5 centimeters, a mitotic rate greater than 2, or if the patient has high, uh, positive margins after resection. 
And even if the patient has the tumor resected to negative margins, uh, imatinib uh, can and, and oftentimes should be used. And it's FDA approved for three years of adjuvant treatment, um, although some centers uh, and institutions will uh, give the imatinib uh, um, uh, lifelong, actually. So this is also kind of up in the air. But I think knowing that neoadjuvant adjuvant treatment is imatinib is, is going to be adequate for the exam. All right, let's move on to gastric cancer. So gastric adenocarcinoma makes up 90% of gastric cancer, and the majority of these are intestinal type, which is uh, the more common type. Um, the less common type is is known as the diffuse type, which is an autosomal dominant uh, condition in which you have loss of e-cadherin expression. Uh, now, Teddy, how do these patients present? So most of these patients usually have non-specific sim- non-specific symptoms, um, which include vague abdominal pain, weight loss, and unfortunately, most of these patients or some of these patients are metastatic at the time of diagnosis. Um, risk factors in their history for cancer would be H. pylori, which is the number one risk factor for um, gastric cancer. Diet, smoking, alcohol, obesity. EBV infection, um, pernicious anemia, and um, uh, their descent because people in um, some of the Western countries eat a higher diet of um, uh, grilled meats and that puts them at higher risk for gastric cancer. Uh, what about workup, Patrick? Yeah, so an EGD with biopsies is diagnostic for gastric cancer, uh, but you also need to perform an EUS uh, for the purpose of T and N staging in addition to a, to a CT PET scan. Um, you also want to consider staging laparoscopy, which is more frequent than, done more frequently than not. And uh, during your staging laparoscopy, you perform washings uh, in addition to oftentimes cons- at least considering putting a, a feeding tube in place. Now, 30% of patients uh, uh, with no METs on CT will actually end up having METs. So CT scan, uh, not the best study. And PET scan is not much better uh, as PET scan only picks up 50% of carcinomatosis. Now, in regards to treatment, uh, if the patient has T1A disease in, in which the tumor invades the muscularis mucosa only, they can be considered for endoscopic resection. So again, T1A disease, muscularis mucosa, consideration for endoscopic resection. For T1B disease in which the tumor invades the submucosa, these patients can go straight to surgery. More commonly on the boards, you'll be presented with a patient with any uh, a local regional disease, all right? Um, so anything above T1B. In, which, in this case, all of these patients should undergo neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then surgery. Uh, the uh, randomized control trial known as the MAGIC trial demonstrated significantly better outcomes in regards to mortality for patients getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy. What about margins, uh, Teddy? Yeah, so the key uh, number to remember is five centimeter. Um, that's what you need to get an R0 resection. And then when we think about operations for gastric cancer, there's essentially two of them, depending on location of the tumor. So if it's more proximal, you're going to do a total gastrectomy. If it's a, a distal tumor, then you're going to get you might be able to get away with a distal gastrectomy. Um, there is no proximal gastrectomy anymore. Um, so if you're faced with a proximal gastric cancer, um, the surgery of choice is a total gastrectomy with a Ruin Y. Um, it's important to note that if you have a GE junction tumor that extends up to two centimeters onto the stomach, these are still treated as an esophageal cancer. Um, and then you can't talk about gastric cancer operations without talking about lymph nodes. So Patrick, why don't you run through that? Yeah, so I am by no means an expert in this, and this is probably goes beyond what you need to know for the oral exam. There are experts that fight about this still. 
Uh, the data is not clear, uh, but it is probably important to know a little bit about it uh, heading into the exam. So um, a D1 resection includes uh, uh, removing all of the perigastric lymph nodes, or I should actually say a D1 lymphadenectomy, involves all the perigastric nodes, which are stations one through seven, uh, and this is along the lesser and greater curve of the stomach. So these are just the lymph nodes that come out when you take the stomach out. A D2 lymphadenectomy is a D1 plus all of the nodes along the celiac root and its branches. So all of the nodes that go along the common hepatic, the left gastric, and the splenic arteries. D3, also known as a superextended lymphadenectomy, includes a D2 plus lymph node uh, harvesting from the porta hepatis and the periaortic regions. Now, again, the which to perform is very controversial. Um, for sure, we know that D3 is not better than D2 in the United States, at least. Um, however, D2 may have a better stage-specific survival when compared to D1. So the NCCN recommends that 15 lymph nodes be harvested and that this uh, should be done, uh, pending the level of expertise, as a D2 lymphadenectomy without splenectomy. All right, so one of the core surgical procedures, according to the, the SCORE guidelines, is the total gastrectomy, so we'll take a minute to talk about that. Um, for a total gastrectomy, we're going to do an upper midline incision, uh, explore for METs, take down the left uh, liver and the triangular, via the triangular ligament. We're going to remove the greater momentum off of the transverse colon, as this, uh, the entire greater momentum is going to be part of your specimen. We're then going to dissect the transverse colon mesentery from the right gastroepiploic vessels and ligate the right gastroepiploic vessels. We're then going to continue on the greater curve and ligate the short gastrics. Next, free the lesser curve along the, near the liver and take the right gastric artery. We want to be ensure that we don't confuse this with the GDA. We'll then transect the duodenum and flip the stomach up and find and ligate the left gastric artery. Then move up to the esophagus, free this up. Uh, and sacrifice the vagus nerves and transect the esophagus. Again, we can describe a D2 lymphadenectomy, a lymphadenectomy in which we remove lymph nodes from the celiac root and all of its branches. And then we can reconstruct the patient with a RUIN-Y esophagojejunostomy. This can be performed either hand-sewn or with an EEA stapler. And uh, certainly a hemigastrectomy, very similar. It's the same as what we just discussed, but we are definitely going to preserve the short gastric vessels as this is the primary blood supply to the stomach remnant. All right, let's move on to morbid obesity. So per the World Health Organization and the CDC, uh, normal BMI is 18.5 to 25. Overweight is 25 to 30. Class 1 obesity is 30 to 35. Class 2 obesity is 35 to 40. And class 3 obesity greater than 40. Uh, currently, one-third of Americans are overweight and one-half are obese. And the indications for surgery were determined in 1991 per the NIH guidelines, and they have actually, surprisingly, never actually been updated since. And so uh, if the patient has a BMI greater than 40 or if they have a BMI greater than 35 with a comorbidity, uh, they are candidates for surgery. These comorbidities are extensive uh, and mostly metabolic in nature. So when we talk about weight loss, we... Um it's defined as the percentage of excess body, the loss, percentage loss of excess body weight, which is the pre-surgical weight minus the ideal body weight. Weight loss usually peaks about one to two years after surgery and then is often um, followed by a partial weight regain. So when we look at outcomes, um, as far as weight loss goes, patients um, with a sleeve 
usually usually lose about 50 to 60 percent of their excess body weight. Um, bypass patients, it's a little bit more, about 60 to 70 percent. And when uh, the other benefit of this operation is resolution of comorbidities, and we see this about 50 to 100 percent of comorbidities uh, reduction. So hypertension, about 50 percent uh, reduction. Uh, resolution, sorry, uh, diabetes up to 75%, and then obstructive, obstructive sleep apnea approaching 100%. Uh, you should plan on your own reviewing gastric bypass and sleeve gastrectomy, the operative steps for those, um, both of which are listed as advanced procedures. We're not going to cover those uh, in the podcast, but we are going to focus on the complications following surgery, which are generally more likely to be tested on the boards. Yeah, so there are a slew of postoperative complications, including bleeding, leak, marginal ulcers, stenosis, um, cholelidocolithiasis uh, following Renoir gastric bypass, and internal hernia. So let's start with with bleeding. Um, you know how to treat bleeding. We're gonna move on to leak. Actually, <laughs> we love bleeding. Uh, yeah, it's a so, sign of life. Yeah. So uh, how about leak? So these patients are gonna present with tachycardia. Okay, uh, that's the earliest and and. Number one kind of indicator for this, uh, they have abdominal pain. Leaks typically occur about uh, five to seven days after surgery. Uh, diagnosis would uh, be performed by an upper GI or a CT scan with oral contrast. And you have a lot of treatment options. Those, uh, the treatment options mostly depend on when you diagnose the leak um, and, and how sick the patient is. And so if it's within a few days of surgery, you're probably going to want to go back in uh, and redo that anastomosis, wash the patient out, place drains, et cetera. However, if the patient's farther out from surgery and it would be a very challenging surgical field, you want to consider less invasive options like uh, percutaneous drainage, uh, maybe even laparoscopic drainage, in addition to uh, things like endoscopic suturing or stenting even for a sleeve gastrectomy. Yeah, just to reiterate, um, Patrick, it, you know, tachycardia is the indication that the patient has a leak. So if you do a gastric bypass, your patient becomes tachycardic, the answer is generally take them back to the OR to re-explore, especially if it's like immediately in the post-operative period, the next day or the day after that. Um, again, I think we should talk about marginal ulcer because mm-hmm. that's a, a hot topic with this. Um, so these patients usually present with um, upper GI bleeding, also classically with pain, and sometimes even obstructive symptoms. Um, when we think about risk factors, this includes um, a patient with a large gastric pouch it's because they have retained parietal cells. Um, any patient has undiagnosed H. pylori, uh, they don't take their PPIs like they're supposed to, patients who continue to smoke or take NSAIDs, um, and, and these patients, the way we diagnose that, them would be with an EGD, and you would see the marginal ulcer kind of in the, near the anastomosis. The treatment is high-dose PPI and risk factor modification, which is stop smoking, stop smoking, stop smoking. Um, and ultimately, they may require revision. Right. Uh, next would be stenosis following sleeve gastrectomy. These patients can present with nausea, vomiting, epigastric pain. Uh, best diagnosed with an upper GI. And initial treatment is a non-surgical. You can dilate endoscopically. Um, and this may open up that stenosis. However, uh, if worse comes to worse, maybe you're on the exam and you're doing these endoscopic treatments, nothing's working. You may have to describe their uh, conversion from a sleeve to a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass if the disease is severe enough. Um, and we talk about biliary complications, so cholelithiasis, cholelidocolithiasis following uh, gastric bypass. It's seen um, in a, up to about 30% of patients 
develop cholelithiasis afterwards. And, and we can reduce that risk with um, urso-deoxycholic acid um, following surgery for about six months. It decreases this risk uh, down to 2%. Um, but what do you do when you have a patient that's yeah. had a ruin Y and now they present with cholelithiasis? This is a perfect board scenario. Yep, and, and in real life too, because mm-hmm. you know, this is a common complication and now an even more common operation. So you should be able to describe how to get to the stomach remnant um, laparoscopically. Um, so that you can pass an endoscope into the stomach remnant to do an ERCP. And you would do this laparoscopically by placing a 15-millimeter trocar into the stomach remnant in, under direct visualization, put the, tro- put the scope through the trocar, and then at the end you can use this for a D-tube site so you can allow for repeat access and or um, decompressing the stomach remnant. All right, and then last would be an internal hernia. Uh, this is probably a good oral board scenario, too, because uh, these patients oftentimes present with recurrent, crampy abdominal pain. And the scenario may go, you see them in the ED, they feel great, you get a CT scan, there's nothing on the CT scan, they go home. They come back again two weeks later, same scenario, nothing on the CT scan. But if these patients have multiple episodes, even again, if nothing's on the CT scan, they warrant surgical exploration. And that's going to be a lapar- laparos- laparoscopic surgical exploration to hopefully identify an internal hernia. There are three types. One is mesenteric, one's mesocolic, and one's through uh, a Peterson space. If you're not familiar with those uh, hernias, it's probably worth taking a peek. Yeah, just to reiterate, I think another complication is, you know, you have a patient that comes in with a small bowel obstruction, and you, in their history they have a ruin Y. You're pretty much going to always operate on these patients just to rule out an internal hernia, which, you, like you said, Patrick, you can't see that on a CT scan all yeah. the time. Well, you may see it. You but you, but, but right. the, the scenario is you don't see it, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, of course. All right. All right, last and not least is gastric forum body, which is kind of an interesting core topic for the SCORE curriculum. It's always, it's always a prisoner, right? <laughs> it is always a prisoner. Uh, and so you want to diagnose an X-ray. If it's not a radiopaque object, you're concerned it's still there due to CT scan. And you want to immediately remove this foreign body with endoscopy if uh, certainly it's causing esophageal airway obstruction. That's easy. Or if you think it's a battery, as electrical current can cause ulceration within hours, actually, of uh, a battery ingestion. Also, if maybe it's a small kid, they've ingested one or more magnets. This can lead to pressure necrosis if those magnets happen, have magnets happen to get together. Uh, and certainly if sharp objects uh, should be removed. Prisoners. <laughs> and uh, blunt objects that pose no immediate threat can probably be managed conservatively, and you can watch for them to pass. Um, you might want to mention repeat imaging on the exam just to ensure that it has passed and to educate that patient on signs or symptoms of obstruction. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us. And remember, dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.